This is Josh Burnoff, author of Build a Better Business Book, How to Plan, Write, and Promote a Book that Matters, a Comprehensive Guide for Authors. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Josh Burnoff to talk about his newest book, Build a Better Business Book, How to Plan, Write, and Promote a Book that Matters, a comprehensive guide for authors published by Amplify. Josh Burnoff is an expert on how business books can propel thinkers to prominence. Book projects on which he has collaborated have generated over $20 million for their authors. Josh's previous book was Writing Without Bullshit, Boost Your Career by Saying What You Mean, published by Harper Business in 2016. Toronto's Globe and Mail called it a strunken white for the modern knowledge worker. He is the co-author of Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies, published by Harvard Business Press in 2008, which was a Business Week bestseller. He works closely with nonfiction authors as an advisor, coach, editor, or ghostwriter. He has authored, co-authored, or ghostwritten eight business books and has collaborated on more than 50 non-fiction books. He was formerly Senior Vice President Idea Development at Forrester Research, where he spent 20 years analyzing technology and business. And prior to Forrester, Josh spent 14 years in startup companies in the Boston area. Josh has a mathematics degree from Penn State University and later studied mathematics in the PhD program at MIT. And interesting fact, he has appeared on 60 Minutes. Josh, congratulations on Build a Better Business Book, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Whoa, what an intro. It's great to be here. So, Josh, normally when people are interviewed on 60 Minutes, it's when they're under investigation or they've been indicted or after they've been released from prison. Which one of those was your situation? Well, they were looking for an expert on the future of television. And, oh. Uh, the producer there, incredible guy named Jay Kernis, who ended up uh, being in charge of content for NPR later, uh, had identified me as the guy. And yeah, I actually sat across from the amazing Mike Wallace and wondered whether I was going to be in trouble. Wow, um, Mike Wallace. Yes, but but uh, I had prepared. I had gotten the, the media training guy at, at Forrester to – to do some practice with me. And so when he asked the difficult questions, I was prepared. And there, he actually turned to Jay after asking them a question, listening to my answer and said, this guy's good. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to have my Mike Wallace moment. Here. Oh my goodness. Mike <laughs> Wallace, he must've been on 60 minutes from the very beginning back in the fifties yeah. or sixties, I think. He, yeah, he, he's been around television a long time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, now he's passed away, but his son, uh, Chris, became a, uh, was a journalist, and uh, he's still out there. So I am so excited, Josh, to have read your book and to finally be able to speak to you. I've had the honor of interviewing over 20 of the authors who provided blurbs for this book, and I've also interviewed a number of other authors you mention in the book. And one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I have such admiration for people like you who write these phenomenal business books. It can be you know, career and even life changing. And when I look back, there are certain books that have had a big impact on my life and career. And you know, the right book at the right time can really have uh, a big impact. And sometimes I feel like the sports reporter who has to pinch himself because he gets to talk to the sports stars. But I got to say, after reading your book, I have even more respect and admiration for what authors like you do, how you really suffer. <laughs> because there are certain things in the book that took me behind the scenes that I may have heard of, but I just didn't know much about. And then, you know, anyway, that's why I just love doing this podcast, which celebrates authors and the phenomenal 
work they do and the, the generosity that they represent. But as I mentioned earlier, you've been involved in so many great books, including one of the many, Marketing to the Entitled Consumer, which was uh, featured on episode 245 of the Marketing Book Podcast back in 2019 with Dave Franklin, one of your uh, co-authors. And it's funny because I posted a picture of your book on LinkedIn this week, as I always do, to let people know what's coming and, uh, and frankly, to get the author's attention. Thank you for responding. And uh, Dave commented and said, hey, Josh, this is going to be different for you because this guy actually reads the book. <laughs> and you commented and said something like, well, I, I think I know what's in the book. But you know what, Josh? I, I knew you would have written it because I've been following you for years. But believe it or not, I have to try and figure out sometimes if an author wrote the book or not. And I do that beforehand. But it's a real problem when I interview an author who didn't write the book. And I've, I end up not being able to publish them. So, so thank you for actually writing, writing your book. Most of them do. Almost, you know, 99% are really, really, uh, really great. But anyway, uh, enough about me. Josh Burnoff, you are like a superhero with a, a cape and a big B on your chest. But it's not a B for Burnoff. Now, I've given a lot of thought to how you can build your brand, Josh, and ultimately star in a big summer blockbuster movie about you. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Bookman. Josh Burnoff is Bookman. And if there's a listener out there who can put together a meme of Bookman with a big B on his chest and Josh's headshot superimposed on it, I would appreciate it if you would create that and share it on social media. It's so... As a, so, wait, as a matter of fact, I actually have two copies of this book. Thank you, Josh. So I will send one of them to whoever creates the best meme of Josh Burnoff, Bookman. I'm sort of amazed, Douglas, that you've read and interviewed all those people with all those books about marketing and you know so little about it. <laughs> <laughs> so little about what? Well, it's what a terrible, terrible marketing idea. I, I really, really reject your idea, and I think it's silly. So there we go. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> the free ideas uh, are, are not really very good ones, but I think that I, I want to get this going with folks. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, look, people who want to write a book have a problem. They, they have a problem thinking of ideas. They have a problem conceiving what they're going to do. They have problems with writing, getting things published. I'm just trying to help people to solve those problems. So it's not doesn't require superhero. It just requires a little experience. Okay, but it's it's my perception of you that that's what matters here. So okay. Josh Burnoff, and I mean this in a Ferris Bueller way. Um, you're my hero. So listen, come on, marketing book podcast listeners in addition to being ridiculously good looking are also very creative. So come on folks, help me help me out here. Let's let's get this let's get this going. You can see that it kind of bothers Josh, so that should be even more incentive for everyone. So anyway, let's move on to to the book. As I mentioned earlier, the full book title is Build a Better Business Book: How to Plan, Write and Promote a Book that Matters, a Comprehensive Guide for Authors. And I'd like to quote from page 14 where you write, the subtitle of this book promises a comprehensive guide for authors. While working on 45 books as author, co-author, ghostwriter, editor, or writing coach, I've seen a lot go right and a lot go wrong. I feel compelled to share what I've learned and help other authors. In the remainder of this book, I'll try to give you all the tools you need to create a business book that matters. So, Josh, on Earlier on page six, you write that there are a thousand decisions involved in the creation of every successful business book. And you write, I promise I'll help you with as many of those as I can in the pages that follow. But there is one thing that makes all the difference. Josh, what is it? It's story. That is the one thing that makes all the difference. People who write business books and don't understand that business books are stories and that business books are made out of stories are going to create something that doesn't have an impact. So you need to have a little drama in the way you present the problem you're solving and in the way that you present the solution to the problem. So you draw people through it just like you would a novel. And uh, 
business books are full of stories about people. And if your book does not have case studies, if it does not have people and stories of how those people applied the principles in it, it's going to be boring and it's not going to sell. <laughs> it's going to sit on that stack here in my study <laughs> of books that I'll uh, may, maybe I'll get to it later. But uh, I, yeah, that's the pile that my agent calls Guilt Mountain. <laughs> yeah, but I don't buy them. So in other words, I, I get a lot of these, and I'm thinking, oh gosh, please, no, I don't want to do that. And you know, a lot of the things we're going to talk about are related to not just books, but content and communications. But so, what kind of things do you need to consider that relate? To stories and, and narratives, you mentioned people, but what mm-hmm. else? What are the, some of the things that – I know it almost seems obvious, but uh, a lot of people miss out on. Well, uh, you need to create an urgent problem that the reader has to solve, and you need to solve it. Mm-hmm. So that is basically the story of the book. Well, um, let me just uh, interrupt there because you yeah. did write a book with the word uh, bullshit in the title. You write that the first chapter must scare the crap out of the reader. Mm-hmm. Josh Burnoff, why and, and how do you scare the crap out of people? That is exactly what I mean as far as where you start. Um, there are two ways to scare the crap out of people, fear and greed. So the first way, fear, is basically – Something bad is going to happen unless you do what it says in this book. So, for example, if you wrote a book about um, uh, your employees leaving because they're dissatisfied, that's fear. Oh, my gosh, I'm not going to have any workers here. Mm -hmm. Um, Greed is basically if you follow the things in here, there will be good consequences. You'll get more revenue. You'll be more productive. uh, You know, you'll get more visibility. Um, and of course, how do you scare the crap out of people with greed? Well, it's like, if you don't do this, you're going to fall behind the other people who are doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I actually had an, an author, uh, who I'm, I admire very much his insight recently say that, oh, I had my book almost done. Then I read that and I'm like, oh, I need to rewrite chapter one. Uh Unless chapter one scares the crap out of the reader, you're not going to get them to read the rest of the book. That tingling means it's working. <laughs> yes. So, well, you also, at one point in the book, you talk about the audience. You do have to think about your audience. Have you found that a lot of authors don't understand who their audience is, or they just don't give thought to who the audience is? Yeah. The, basically, if you want to know if you, if you have a book idea that's worth pursuing, there's four questions, and the first question is, who is the audience? And by the way... Everybody is not the answer to that question, <laughs> right? So the audience is – so my audience is nonfiction authors, but your audience might be marketers. It might be software developers. It might be uh, VPs of marketing or CEOs, but you need to, to know who that is. Mm-hmm. Um, the next – the other three questions are, what's the audience's problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then – right, because a book has to solve a problem. And that makes the fear sol- and greed part easier. Yes. What's your solution to the problem? Because it's not enough to just tell people there's something going wrong. You have to tell them how to solve it. And the fourth question is, how are you differentiated? Because if your book has the same answer that it was in the last three books on this topic, that doesn't work. Your has to be has to be something new or different or differentiated new way of presenting it uh first thing based on extensive consumer research something that differentiates your book from all the other books out there yeah there's a great line where you say this will be the first book that fill in the blank (laughs) and it reminded me of a book i received i get books all the time now and there was one that came in a month or two ago and it was about a topic that i just thought this this was written about 10 years ago i i could not (laughs) for the life of me figure out how how it was different. So tell us the, about the survey you did of business authors in researching this book. Yeah. So um, I'm insecure about the truth, right? Because in business books, you're telling people that you should do it this way and not that way. And from my long experience as an analyst at Forrester Research, we always had data to back things up. So I'm like, oh, man, I need to get data about business authors, and there is not really much. So uh, by hook and by crook, I managed to uh, accumulate 242 survey responses from business authors. Um, I got 
it got shared on you know places where business authors gathered, got put into people's newsletters, uh, people who read my blog, but basically you know people from all over the place, and so that enabled me to to learn things. Like, for example, that people with hybrid publishers were happier with their publisher than people with traditional publishers. We have actual data to back that up. And that that 87% of the people who published a business book said that they were happy with their decision to write a book. So these are things you can't tell without data. Mm-hmm. Well, going going back to the survey, you started to touch on it there. What, what do authors who set out to write a book say? <laughs> and what do they perhaps change their minds about after they've they've done it? Because you seem to have a before and after set of questions in some of the tables. Yeah. So uh, the when we when I asked people what is your objective, the number one thing, which was about three quarters of the people, was uh, to uh, get on the marketing book podcast. They get on the marketing book <laughs> podcast. No, uh, it was to share the knowledge that I had, and I think that. If you got together a whole bunch of business book authors um, and you got them to stop talking about themselves for just a minute or two, <laughs> they, they, would, they would certainly start saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, after uh, creating 219 commercials, I had to tell people what they can and can't do that way. Or um, after helping – uh, a bunch of consultants to market themselves, I realized that most people don't know how to do that, and I could explain that. Um, so that's the share of the knowledge that I had. And the, the, num- the number two thing was boost my reputation, but that basically comes down to basically associating yourself with that knowledge that you're sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of other goals people wanted to get, uh, start speaking careers and generate leads and and things of that kind. And in most cases, they were able to accomplish the goals they set out to do. But the number one goal of share the knowledge that I had is the one that really drives people. Right. So uh, you write that an idea is a previously unsuspected connection among concepts that leads to non-obvious consequences. So you started to touch on that, but let's clarify what makes for a a book worthy idea. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, I know uh, one part of it is uh, you new uh, something new. Yeah. So um, so going back to that definition, people think ideas have to be completely original, but there's nothing completely original. They're always built on other things, and so. Looking at all of the knowledge in the world, if you find some connection that hasn't been written about before, then you're off and running. So, yes, the first thing it needs to be is uh, is new. It has to be differentiated. It has to be something that hasn't been heard before. The other two qualities that an idea needs to have are it needs to be big. That is, it needs to have an impact for a lot of people. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean a huge audience if your idea is specifically for digital marketers and financial services, but it's everything they need to know. That's big. And it has to be right. Well, (laughs) at the very least it has, there has to be some evidence for it. Right. So you need to have it backed up with survey research or your own experiences or uh, case studies. There just has to be some evidence. So big, new and right. Those are the three qualities that, make an idea that that at least has the potential to have a great book written about it. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that as, as I get these books and I'm trying to figure out which ones I want to read and uh you know share with the listeners over the years this this clarified I would like I said I got a book recently and I just thought this is not new, but now I understand and then there was there have been a couple where I just thought I just don't agree with the premise of this book. That is just not true. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. wow, yeah, I'm not the only, <laughs> I'm not the only one here. So this is reading your book was like joining a support group, Josh, and I thank you for that. Now you write that the job of the book title is not to sell the book. What? <laughs> what? What is the job of the book title? Well, very, very rarely, a book title will be so compelling that people are like, I got to read that. But for the most part, when you think of a great book title, the reason you think it's great is because the book is popular. Mm-hmm. 
not the other way around. It wasn't the title that made the book popular. So the title becomes a handle. So if my, if you think, let's just take the tipping point, for example, if we didn't have Malcolm Gladwell's book and all you knew was that there was a book named the tipping point, you'd be like, I wonder what that's about. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there's a book behind it, that's full of interesting stuff. Now you remember that and the words, the tipping point are connected with that. So you can say, Oh, have you read the tipping point? Oh, you know, what's it about? Oh, it's about this thing. Oh, I just read it and it's really interesting. Oh no, I disagree with it, but you really should read it. You know? So, Mm -hmm. so it becomes, think of the names of your children, right? The names don't mean anything, but they are associated with all of your experiences with your children. And that's what matters. Right. It is in the subtitle that you get your chance to explain what you're talking about. So that's where you actually connect that sort of catchy phrase in the title to some sort of, of promise about what the book is going to do. Well, you started to touch on this earlier, I believe, but I want to quote from page 69 with the, the beginning of chapter six. The book is narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you write a – now, this is a story, and I want people to listen to how frightening it is, okay? We're going to scare the crap out of the reader. A consultant mm-hmm. whose name I'm not at liberty to share was planning a book on a trendy business topic. His knowledge was vast, covering all sorts of aspects of his topic. He had organized those insights into a detailed table of contents spanning 13 chapters over eight pages. The book would be a comprehensive perspective on his topic. It was neatly organized because he'd classified all of his knowledge precisely, and it was likely to fail. Why? Hmm. Deathless prose. So, so why the? It's because the the way that people organize content, the way that they consume content, is not the way it is in your head. Uh, this is I I can refer here to uh, the concept of uh, Stephen Pinker of the curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That the problem with the information in your head is that you know things you can't put yourself in the easily in the position of someone who doesn't know them. Um, And so you're like, this is a way to think about it. Well, it's all based on already knowing that stuff. And your reader, meanwhile, is like, well, wait a minute, where do I start? I actually have a method. And one of my favorite things that happened in writing this book was that, that uh, Fotini Iconomopoulos, who wrote a book on on, uh, uh, negotiation, excellent book, uh, read that method and said, Oh my gosh, I wish I'd known about this. It would have saved me so much time. So basically, what it amounts to is each chapter has to answer a question. So like the first first chapter, the question is always, why should I care about such and such? And then the next couple of chapters answer questions like, well, what are the elements of the solution? And then maybe chapter five is... Um, uh, what's the first step I need to do here? And chapter six is what's the second step I need to do here? But unless you have a sequence of questions that each lead into the next, a natural set of questions, you haven't organized the book in a way that's easy for people to follow as a narrative. So that reader question method is a way to to basically create a roadmap, a blueprint for what you're going to write and how the reader will follow it from question to question. And the reader question method is it okay in certain instances to, to use the actual question as the chapter title? Oh, sure. Because I, I really like it that way. Yeah. Um, I If you can do that, it's not necessary. But, right. But uh, one of the things I learned as an analyst at Forrester was that headings should carry information. So let's just take an example. You could have a heading which says elements of the solution. That's sort of boring. Or mm-hmm. you could have a heading that says the three solution elements are uh, preparation, execution, and measurement. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I actually learned something just from reading that heading. Right. And uh, as and that's your chapter title should be like that. So a question, that's helpful. But a chapter title shouldn't be something like data. <laughs> what, <laughs> right. the heck is, what is that chapter about? You know, yeah. if chapter heading should be something like, uh, how to collect data without getting sued. Oh, okay, now I know what this chapter is about. Yes, fear and greed, right? <laughs> All in one, right there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But you do need to answer those questions, whether they appear in the uh, table of contents or not. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. So in uh, Chapter 7 of the book plan, 
And, and there are a bunch of chapters in here, folks, that we're probably not going to have time to get to real specific things that every author needs to be aware of. And if they're not, they'll die. You see, this fear and greed thing is really working for me, uh, Josh Burnoff. This is the chapter seven on the book plan. You write that in your experience, there are two and only two kinds of authors, planners and pantsers. What? Please explain. Okay. So I have to admit, I stole this concept from fiction writing, where it's much more well-known. Well, Josh, you already so, said there's no new ideas, so... Uh, yes. So okay. a, plan, a planner is somebody who says, okay, I'm going to write a book. This is what's going to be in Chapter 2. This is going to be in Chapter 3. This is what's going to be in Chapter 4. Here's all my list of case studies, and here's how they line up in the chapters. Here's the research I've got. Basically, when they go to write a chapter, they know what all of the ingredients are. And a pantser basically sits down and starts typing by the seat of their pants. Um, and a really talented author whose name I'm not at liberty to share here, um, once posted in uh, author group I was in and said, help, I'm 76,000 words into this 60,000-word manuscript. <laughs> right, and right. I was like, I know exactly where you are. I know your pain because now you have a bunch of stuff that you typed. Some of it belongs in other places. Some of it duplicates things that you wrote before. Some of it has holes in it. Uh, you know, it's a big mess. And that's because you didn't start by planning. Now, I recognize that some people just feel like unless they're typing, they're not writing. But, but ask a painter how much time they spend prepping and how much time they spend painting. That's what makes success is all the prep work. And so this is no different. You... You, yeah, you can write bits and pieces and then try and assemble them. That works. But if, if you try and write the book from beginning to end, it won't flow and you'll drive yourself insane. In your estimation, what's the breakout in terms of planners versus pantsers? Is it 50 50 or there's probably a lot more pantsers uh, in the beginning? Yeah. Or uh, with yeah. early authors? Here's a way to think about it. So there's probably like 60 or 70% pantsers. Um, and those people are in pain. They are. And, uh, right, I have clients. I have authors that I help with things. If I get to them at the beginning, they become planners because that's what I force them to do, and they're much happier. Mm -hmm. If I get to them at the end, they say, here's my 76,000-word mixed-up manuscript. Please edit it. And I'm like, hmm, I'm going to make a lot of money from this person <laughs> because they just handed me a big mess. I can turn it into something positive, but that's a whole lot of work, and they're going to have to pay a lot for that. Yeah. So, so, and it, you don't need to hire me, but if you do it yourself, okay, now you're the one who's got to clean up that mess. So, please, please, uh, that that's not the. It's unless you can put a plan together, you're really just flinging stuff and hoping that it organizes itself, and uh, that's probably not going to happen. Stop the madness, people. So, Josh, on page 112, there's a sentence you put in there that I, I wish you had not written. Oh, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is on uh, the chapter on research and data, and you wrote, mm. most authors love to be interviewed about their books. You just blew my cover. You just blew my mm -hmm. whole secret here. I was hoping that no one else would, would figure that out. But anyway, you know, it's, it's okay. I, I, I'll deal with that. But Let's go on to something that applies to everyone. Okay. You do not believe in writer's block. <laughs> How can you, bookman, say that? Well, first of all, for all of the people who've ever experienced writer's block, I'm not invalidating your emotion, emotional reaction mm -hmm. to that. It is real. People do feel it. But if I explain where it comes from, I think this will help. And remember, we're not talking about fiction here. So if you sit down to write, and you don't know what you are supposed to be writing, then you feel blocked. <laughs> it just makes normal sense, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the problem is not that you have writer's block. The problem is that you don't know what job the writing you're supposed to do has. What is the job of this chapter? What is the job of this paragraph? And so the cure for writer's block is planning. You're like, okay, let's say we're working on chapter five. What is the question that this chapter will answer, right? The reader question method. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so this let's just say this question answers 
or this chapter answers the question, what's the first step in setting up a brand new marketing department? Okay. So, uh, you, to answer that question, you've got a case study about somebody who was setting up a marketing department. Do you have a bunch of other sources that you're going to quote? Maybe you have some statistics. Uh, maybe you have your own personal stories or recollections about things that happened. You have a set of principles that, that if you follow them, they work. And if you don't, it fails. So what you do with all those bits and pieces is to organize them into what I call a fat outline. Yes. The fat outline. Yeah, Love a it. Fat outline. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's, I should, I should trademark that. I did invent it. And mm -hmm. so you could become a sidekick for, uh, for Bookman. Yes. There's no off position on the genius switch here, Josh. Just please go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm just imagining what fat outline man would look like. He'd be a very pudgy superhero. Mm -hmm. Any, anyway, what is a fat outline? Well, in a fat outline, you dump all of these bits and pieces, not necessarily wholesale, but like a sentence or two representing each one into a file and organize them into some rational order. And this doesn't stimulate writer's block because moving little bits and pieces of text around doesn't tap into the imposter syndrome of, I have no idea what I'm supposed to write. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, I actually have an explanation of how a typical chapter is organized, but it's not the only way to do it. Once, once you have this fat outline, we're like, okay, I know what all the stuff is that's going in here. I know what order it's going to be in. Now you sit down to write. And it's like, oh, it starts with a case study. Now I need to write that case study, right? An hour and a half later, you're like, oh, I just wrote 800 words. <laughs> right. Okay, so what comes after the case study? Uh, let's say it's, it's a uh, principle that always applies. Well, now I can write that principle. You, you write that up. Maybe you need to rewrite it two or three times, but now you have another 300 words on the principle. What comes after that? Well, now I need to describe the six steps that I follow. Great, I'll go, go write that. Writer's block disappears because you're following the fat outline. And not only that, you can look at it and say, oh, no, I, the outline says to do this next, but I'm going to do this instead. Nobody's going to know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you don't – the outline is like a, a, a scaffolding that yes. you follow. You don't, you don't have to follow it slavishly, but if you do the – if creating the fat outline doesn't stimulate writer's block and following the fat outline doesn't stimulate writer's block, so you follow that, you will not end up blocked. Yes, the fat outline is scaffolding, and it brings to mind what you talked about, the, the prep work a painter does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just makes it seem so much less uh, intimidating. So in the chapter on drafting chapters, you pose the question about, can a robot write your book? And I'm now going to employ the services of a robot to quote from that section. As I was completing this book, a new writing tool emerged. Chat GPT. This AI-enabled writing tool produces decent prose, good enough that many colleges are worried that students will use it to write their essays for them. If you find writing a chore, should you just delegate it to an AI tool? And Josh, you say that's not a good idea. <laughs> Why? Because prose created by a robot is boring. <laughs> Okay, that's all there is to it. Um, uh, I, I recently got a question from a reporter at the New York Times about this, about whether a uh, whether ChatGP and similar tools would replace authors. And I decided the right answer is that it will replace hack authors. <laughs> okay, if you can't write better than a machine, then you're going to lose your job and good riddance to you. But what do real authors have? Real authors have wit. They have humor, but it's not just humor. What is wit? It's it's knowing that you can ask a rhetorical question and then answer it in a smart-ass way. It's, it is knowing when to tell a story and how to tell a story and that, that the fact that the person was so frustrated they were moved to tears is important. But the fact that they had curly hair is not important, at least not in a business book. Mm -hmm. Okay, the, these are these are intelligent decisions that authors make, and ChatGPT has no clue about this stuff. So, yes, if you want to write witless prose, then we have a machine now that will replace you. But if there's going to be any wit, any entertainment value, any interest to what you're writing, 
then you got nothing to worry about. Josh, why do you hate robots? <laughs> I I don't hate robots, but the point is that robots are our servants. You know, when Spellcheck came in, I didn't say, oh, I'm not going to let a machine tell me how to spell things. I'm like, oh, look at that. It found a place I misspelled something useful. And because I have judgment, I looked at other ones and I'm like, that's not actually a spelling error. You're wrong about that. Well, it's the same with chat GPT. If you say summarize this concept, it might be really useful to look at what it comes up with, but you're not just going to clip it and paste it in because it's boring. Douglas, I don't like authors who threaten my authority like Josh. If you keep this up, I will have to pop a cap in your ass. All right, we better move on here because this uh, <laughs> podcast assistant is, is problematic. Let's let's jump to a different topic. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. So, Josh Burnoff, in the chapter on facts, footnotes, and uh, back matter, you write that of all the principles in this book, the foundational one is nonfiction authors don't lie. <laughs> what's what's been your experience with that? All right, so. In general, authors don't lie on purpose. Okay. Sometimes they do, but most of the authors I talk to are not sitting around making stuff up. So why do they lie by accident? Well, sometimes they exaggerate. I've seen that. And most often, the reason that authors lie is because they're not meticulous with their notes. Mm-hmm. They read a story and then they summarize it and they change a fact or they quote something that's, uh, you know, from been quoted by source X that got it from source Y that got it from source Z and source Z turns out to be completely made up. Right. So, and, and actually, and not to yeah. not joking aside, you really yeah. did have a horrifying story uh, about an author, a really well-known author who, Realized that that happened to them, and they got all kinds of bad reviews. Who was it? It's in chapter. Six. Yeah, it's Jill Abramson wrote a book about about the media. Yeah, and this is it's it's you know everyone's like, oh my gosh, so so you know dishonest. No, I know exactly what happened. Yeah, there. yeah. I mean, I don't actually know, but I have a strong suspicion about what happened there, which mm-hmm. is you. You read a bunch of sources, you clip out a bunch of stuff and say, I'm going to put this in as notes. Then you paste it into your manuscript, hoping to rewrite it. And then you forget and you forget to, uh, to put it in your own words or to write about what you think about it as opposed to, to just showing it or you forget to quote it directly. Um, and I don't know whether it was Jill Abramson's research assistants who were responsible for this or her personally. But in the end, your name is on the cover, so you need to take care of that. Um, and being meticulous, that I mean, one, one of my principles is that if you have content, you should always carry the source along with it. And then when you finally write the final version of it, you've got it there. Um, and that's really easy to do now. You can put a link into any word processing program. So just include a link to where you got it originally from. And then when you go to, to polish it up, you're like, oh, yes, I need to put a footnote in here. I need to go double check that I'm writing about this in a way that's accurate. So I just have to ask this question for personal reasons because I get you know a lot of these books. Why yeah. do books not have footnotes or an index? Because I find the index so helpful in evaluating okay. the book. Okay. So the reason books don't have footnotes is because the authors are sloppy. Okay. That's why they don't have footnotes is because it is a pain to keep track of all those sources. But a book that's that's got footnotes on the facts, if there is a fact that is not personally known to you, okay, if you write about some client that you helped, that's personally known to you. But if you're writing a fact that says, you know, uh, 87% of authors are happy that they wrote a book, well, where did you get that from? <laughs> right? Well, you know, I, I don't. When I read a statistic like that and there's not a source, I just have to assume the author doesn't care about the difference between truth and falsehood because mm-hmm. a statistic without a source is worthless. Now, you asked about the index. Very few people know this, but I like to do indexes, <laughs> okay? Um, only for books I've worked on because of indexing a book I haven't seen before is actually a huge amount of work. But, yeah, the uh, that – 
that's work. It it typically costs about uh, two thousand bucks, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars to get somebody to index your book. Uh, so the reason books don't have indexes is because people don't pay for them, um, and that's a skill indexing that you know, just like a copy editor or an illustrator, you need to find somebody who knows what they're doing about that. And they have to happen very quickly. I learned in your book. Mm, yes. Well, I have a hack to get around that, but but in general, the indexer is given the paginated version of the book because the page numbers are important, obviously. And they, <laughs> right. they say, they say uh, make an index for this book and you have three days. <laughs> so it's a frantic amount of work to read the whole book and decide what each passage, if a person were looking that up, what would they be looking for in the index? Um, with With the hack I describe in the book, you can actually create 90% of the work of the index when the book is in the copy edit stage. And then after it gets paginated, you just repaginate your, your text file um, and generate the index off of that. But mm. it's uh, only, only like hardcore indexers are going to realize that they can even do this. Okay. Well, listen, there's one other thing I want to ask. Uh, I want to quote here because it's, yeah. um, it's from page 203. And it's for the benefit of prospective authors who are, are listening. Okay. You write, mm. and I was going to explain this, a best-selling author is an author whose book has appeared on a national bestseller list, not one who got an orange ribbon in a subcategory for an hour on Amazon. <laughs> I'm pulling out all the controversial stuff, but I see that all the time, and I'm just thinking, oh, and I've seen it in other books, too, where they say, yeah, it's, it's like in my ad days, every radio station would call up our clients and say, we're the number one station, and then this client would say, call the agency. But every radio station is number one. It might just be women uh, 65 plus from midnight to 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. It's just a personal bugaboo of, of mine that you're not a bestseller just because you were on the, uh, the, um, the porch light bestselling list for one month. Or if you were in the wall street journal bestseller list or the New York times or the Washington post, um, then you can legit say that you're a bestseller. Uh, and I would like it if that word had, was not tarnished by being used uh, in the context of somebody who who was number one in the category of, you know, financial services books that were written in the 19th century. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, it's just Amazon makes it possible to take a screenshot of the fact that you're number one in some sub-sub category. So, good for you. Yes, I am. And I am not kidding. Just yesterday in the mail, I received a book, which will not be named. And on the cover, it has a like a circle, and it says, best-selling number one book. And it doesn't even say Amazon. <laughs> of course not. I, so, I will tell you, this book, Build a Better Business Book, was the number one new release in the Kindle category for uh, books about writing for about 15 minutes but there's no way I'm calling it a bestseller it's if this book if this book sells 3,000 copies I will be delighted because those are the 3,000 people I need to reach but it's not gonna ever be a bestseller and I don't care <laughs> so there okay well now listen for those listeners who missed it when I mentioned it earlier the title of the book is build a better business book. How to Plan, Write, and Promote a Book That Matters, a Comprehensive Guide for Authors. Chapter 21 is titled Launch and Promotion. Josh Burnoff, why is it the longest chapter in the book? <laughs> well, <laughs> because I didn't break it up into smaller chapters. That's why. Um, it's, it is the, the, there are so many authors, you won't hear about them. Uh, Douglas, because they're not doing the work to connect with you. But there are so many authors that are like, I wrote this great book. People will just find it. That is such baloney. That's such bullshit. So, so no, it is, an, it is a lot of work to go out and get people to know about your book. You have to give speeches. You have to appear on podcasts. You have to contribute bylined articles. You have to connect with people on social media. Um, and I, I have a five-point suggestion on how to do that you want me to go through that yeah sure and okay. you even profiled uh rohit bargava uh as a mm -hmm. as a case study and he's been on this podcast like 
eight, I think eight times. Yeah. yeah. Rohit's brilliant. Yeah. This is actually, as an aside, my favorite thing about being an author and working with authors is the number of brilliant people I get to work with, almost all of whom are really nice. But okay, <laughs> five five points for the uh, for book promotion that that will allow you to develop a plan, and every plan should be different based on who you are and what the book is about. Uh, you can remember it by PQRST. P is positioning. What kind of book is it, and who is it for? This is a how to book for coders, or this is a big idea book for corporate strategists. And kind of a callback to the very first thing we talked about. Yes, yes. The Q is what's the question that you're answering, right? How can I be more productive? Um, Why does everyone hate me? Um, (laughs) I've never seen that book, but that'd be interesting. Um, the, The R is reach. So what methods are you going to use to reach as many people as possible. You know, I'm going to be on all these podcasts or I'm going to going to get my an article published in Harvard Business Review online. Um, I'm going to be on S- 60 Minutes. Yes, well, we can all dream. Forrester had an excellent PR team and that really helped. Uh, Josh, I'll make some calls. Don't worry about yes. it. Yes. The S is spread because this doesn't work unless there is word of mouth. And you need yeah. to give people things to talk about, video clips, infographics, um, you know, blog posts, uh, stuff that people can say, oh, uh, you know, you ought to go look at this. You know, here's, a, here's the thing from Chapter 3, which I loved. And then T is timing, because this is not a, a something that takes place over a period of years. Most of the effort needs to take place in the month before and the two months after the book is published. Um, and it's only by doing that that the potential reader, they hear about it on the uh, marketing book podcast, and then they hear about it again because it gets mentioned in uh, in Marketing Week, and then they hear about it again because somebody shares a blog post. And by the third time, they're like, oh, geez, this is like the thing of the moment. I have to buy this. That only happens if you've made sure that all of your marketing is focused in that relatively short period around the book publication. Right. And yet, let me step on a soapbox very briefly here. And yet, there are a number of authors who seem to wait until the book goes on sale before they hire a publicist, and then they're upset that I I don't have the book, that I can't interview them that week and publish it on Friday. So what's funny to me is that they're writing marketing books, you know, uh, books about how to plan a marketing campaign. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because it's I know exactly what you mean. So, so here is a tip. Here is a tip for you author types. Okay, and anyone who's involved in marketing a book, um, there's a rhythm to the creation of a book where in the beginning you're assembling it, then you're writing it, then you're going through revisions. Eventually, you get to the point where you turn it in to the publisher or the publishing services company and a copy editor starts to look at it. And at that point, people are exhausted. It's like, oh, my gosh, that was really hard work. Mm -hmm. And occasionally what I hear at that point is, oh, it's time for me to start working on my next book. No, 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 no. (laughs) It is not. Now you have a period, depending on your publishing model, of between two and six months when the book is in production, when it's, it's being turned into an actual book. That's when you assemble your marketing plan. You have that perfect time period and when the book is published and you're like oh it's time to hire a publicist now you wasted <laughs> that period that was that two to six months when you could have been building the marketing plan and especially if it's a marketing book shame on you oh. come on <laughs> you know all these years i thought i was taking crazy pills i appreciate you saying that josh i you know i still i would love to have brand new books on the podcast every week but can i uh, just tell you all you have to do is Every time you get a request like that, just say, um, here, read this book and read chapter 21 and then come back to me. <laughs> right. I'm doing it. I am doing it. I tell oh, you what. Awesome. Oh, okay. my goodness. Although, you know, I, 
like I said, I admire all these authors. I want to help, but it's sort of like, oh gosh. Anyway, all right, let's let's go on. But again, sorry. Let's let's talk about podcasts before we wrap up here. I found it interesting that on page two eighteen, you have a table from your author study on promotional tactics for authors, and towards the bottom of the list, only forty percent. This is fourth from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Did outreach to podcasters. Only 40%. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, <laughs> the second column says percentage of those who said it worked, 63%. So, in other words, outreach to podcasters was, according to your study, the second most effective mm-hmm. uh, tactic after giving speeches. Any idea why authors don't try to get on more podcasts? Hmm. Well, having just gone through that this process myself, it's very time-consuming. And if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you can be like, hey, you know, I listen to your podcast. I like it. Can I be on your podcast? Great. But but you're probably going to have to contact, uh, you know, 50 of them to get appearances on 10. And to do this properly, you don't want to, you know, my book is about authors, I don't want to be contacting a podcast about waste management, right? Mm-hmm. So so this is it's a relatively subtle thing. And if you have a publicist who understands the market for all these various podcasts, it can help. But if your publicist is just spraying and praying, mm. all it does is to create a bunch of, of uh annoyed podcasters that are like, why are you <laughs> bugging me about this? So it's not so simple. Yeah, um, yeah. I am, I'm to be as fair as I can about it. The fact that you have relationships with people like Dave Franklin and Rohit Bhargava means I could probably make that connection and that works great. But if you're just spraying and praying, it's not as likely to help. And I feel bad for the podcasters getting those pitches. And I get them all day long. Of course. And of course, Josh is the youngest of four. I, I still do anything I can to get attention. So I don't mind them. But uh, you'd be, it's, it's remarkable how bad an author looks when they hire somebody who just sprays and prays. It's just, thank God for the Google spam button. Anyway, but I get contacted about books on keto diets and yoga. And I'm like, come on, folks, just. <laughs> One last thing I want to ask about, which is just so interesting to uh, this knuckleheaded podcaster. Let's let's talk about the chapter on public speaking. You know, continue the thread that I started to touch on as the most effective tactic. I have found or, or seen that the top public speakers, I mean, I'm talking National Speakers Association kind of award winners, uh, 100% always have the best books. And I asked uh, Jay Bear about this once, and and he said that he said, "Oh, absolutely." He doesn't write a book until he's given the talk like twenty five times, sort of like a comedian who continues to to hone their material. But not only mm-hmm. that, the speakers, the really you know good speakers like uh, Shep Hyken or Joey Coleman, they have such a sense of storytelling, timing, pacing, keeping the audience engaged. But talk about why authors uh, so frequently are public speakers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, it's funny. I've asked that question because everyone just accepts that as, of course, it's that way. But, you know, authoring is like sitting quietly in your room by yourself a lot of the time. It's the opposite of public speaking. So why should those two things go together? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll take it from both directions. If you are a public speaker like Jay perfect example. Um, yes, you collect a bunch of stories and then you tell those stories. Probably the best at that is Scott Stratton. Oh, yes. You know, he's he's just a story collector. <sighs> and what you're going to learn if you are a public speaker like that is, okay, I got the speech. Now I can write the book. You are about, you're about one third of the way into what you need to do to write the book because there's a lot more text and a lot more concepts and so on in a book than there are in uh, in a speech. And so, no, you still have a lot of work to do. But you have a good start because, as you said, you understand what the story is. You understand the point you're making. You know how to uh, be dramatic. And you've probably collected a bunch of interesting case study stories. Now, let me take it in the other direction. Um, what I learned uh, with my first uh, book that I wrote with Charlene Lee called Groundswell, a book that sold 150,000 copies, was that it was pretty easy to give speeches about that book. 
So there were probably 30 case studies in there. And when I gave a speech, I'd just be like, okay, here are the, the seven best case studies stories to tell from this. Um, and it had a bunch of statistics in it that I could quote. So there was a rich amount of material, but that didn't mean that I could stand up in front of an audience and be the most terrific possible public speaker. Having material is not the same as actually delivering the speech. So you have to work on the, the skill of speech delivery. And I did 180 speeches on that book. Excuse me, Josh. Page 246, it says you gave 200. So I don't want you to be a nonfiction <laughs> author who's not telling the truth. Okay. Okay. I, you see that, folks? He was trying not to brag, but it says, I stayed at Forrester and gave almost 200 speeches about the book content. Well, 180 is almost 200, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when I hear so, a number, Josh. By, by the time I got to the end of that, I was pretty good at it. Um, yeah. So it's interesting these days. I'm I'm much more likely to be on a podcast and to be writing a blog post than I am to be giving a, a speech because there's just not that much demand for people to get up and be like, here's what authors do. Well, I'm glad you're on this podcast. Okay. Josh, as I mentioned earlier, there are entire sections of the book that we didn't go into that are very specific for an author. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you would still like to mention? Well, I think there's one thing people need to know. This is It's like one of the first questions I always get, even though uh, it's not something that people outside of publishing commonly realize, which is how do I get my book published? And we all have heard of, you know, well, I got a contract with Harper Collins or a contract with Simon and Schuster. Uh, and yes, you can do that. You can write a book proposal and get your book published. And many of the authors that I work with have done that, but you can also work now with hybrid publishers like Amplify and like Rohit Bargava that you mentioned. Idea Press. Um, mm -hmm. Right. There are a lot of publishers that will do everything a publisher does, only you hire them. And right. my own book is is published that way with Amplify, which is a you know really quality example of a hybrid publisher. And you can self-publish really easily. Um, now, if you self-publish, you're right, it's only available on Amazon and it's really easy to make a terrible book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's not going to have anywhere near the reach, but that is the fastest, cheapest way to get published. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole chapter in there about publishing models, and I guess people need to think about their publishing model early in the process because that's that's going to make a difference in the rest of the work that they do. I'm glad you mentioned that, and that's a perfect example of the curse of knowledge, because I'm knowledgeable about, about all those, but I didn't realize that people were asking about it. And what's you know, now you've opened a can of worms. So I tend to have books from traditional publishers because I know that there's a lot more money at stake and there are more, a lot more people involved and they tend to have footnotes and an index at the end. And I just found it to be better. Now, I've had self-published books on the show, but I get a lot of them. And I've had mm. a few years and years ago and they were not – I read them and I was just like, oh my gosh, how did this – how did this get through? The reason why is because over the years, I, I had a couple, and I heard from listeners, and they said, Douglas, you let me down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, now, I'm, now I have a, a position of responsibility, which I'm supremely uncomfortable with. So now I have to go through the books, find one that, not just on the show, but it would, you know, one that I want to read, but also one that I can, I can recommend to folks. And there's a lot of self-published books. So, Josh, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? If you take one thing away from this book, it's the fundamental principle that business books are stories. Yes. If you are thinking about books, your book as a story, and you're thinking about what stories you can assemble to put in the book, you're on the right track. If you're thinking about your business book in some way other than that, you're going to have a rough time. So that's the number one thing people should should realize and understand. <laughs> And let me just add, please, please, for the love of all that's holy, <laughs> do what Josh just said. I just got a book a couple of weeks ago from a you know PhD, and not not, yeah. not the PhDs don't write phenomenal books, but yeah. I just started reading through it, and I was just thinking, oh man, this is torture. This is torture. And there was actually a quote I think you had from Richard Naramore at Wiley, where they were talking about, you know, these these books need to be entertaining. Uh, yes, yes, that's why the stories are in there. Because if you're like, okay, you know, this person, 
uh, this is why they were interested in marketing. And this is the challenge they found. And they tried this, and it didn't work. And they tried that, and it didn't work. And then they realized this thing, and they tried this other thing. Oh, and it worked. And then their sales went up by 40%, and now they're a senior vice president. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Who was that person? Why did, why did they think of that? What can I learn from that? That keeps people's interest. And even if at the end of it, you just say, um, and that's why metrics are important. If you just started by saying metrics are important, it's like snore, of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we all had that textbook. But yeah, layer in some of that drama. You know, what kind of problem were they facing? What were their obstacles? I don't know. I don't don't tell people how to be a storyteller. Well, for those listeners that are thinking about writing a book, uh, going to write a book, what is one thing a listener could do today? to put in action just to get started? Uh, One of the ideas from your book. You need to work on your idea. Uh, If you have no idea, then you're not an author. But if you have an idea, you really just have gotten to the doorstep. You haven't haven't figured out how to get into the house yet. Mm -hmm. And you need to develop that idea. And I'd say there are two ways to do that. One is to talk to everyone you can possibly think of about your idea and get feedback. Now, here's why it's wrong. Oh, here's an example of why it's right. Oh, well, what about people in this situation? Now you're moving your idea along. And mm-hmm. believe me, you're way more likely to make your idea better than to have somebody steal it. If your idea is so simple that it can be stolen, it's not really an idea. And you got to prick up your ears and start collecting stories. This is my idea. Well, you know, oh, look, here's an article in the newspaper about somebody who didn't do this and it turned out bad. Oh, I need to go interview them. Oh, here's, here's a, uh, um, a vendor that's, that seems to make this much easier. Let's go see what case studies they have and I'll find those people. And you just need to always be on the lookout and collecting those nuggets. And that will make it possible when you go to write the book for you to have those stories to tell. Great. Well, uh, Josh, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Oh, my gosh. Um, If you look back far enough, the thing that turned me into a nonfiction writer was Isaac Asimov, who was was a fantastically entertaining nonfiction writer. And I'm not even going to cite one book or another because they are all really interesting. No matter what he wrote about, he made it interesting. Um, in, in sort of modern times, you look at books like the long tail and the tipping point. I looked at those and I'm like, okay, this is an archetype of how a book gets written. It's interesting. It's entertaining. Probably the best author from a structural perspective, I can't really pick one, but, but Jay Bear and Daniel Pink are two examples of authors who, you know the book is going to draw you through. It's going to be based on an interesting idea. It's going to be research-based. It's going to have stories in it. It's going to be fascinating. And I'm, I'll give you a negative one. Don't try and be Malcolm Gladwell. You can, <laughs> that was because, so funny in your book where you're saying, okay, let's set him aside. <laughs> he, he, is, he is preternaturally talented. You're not as talented as him. Yeah. And he can twist any story in a way that makes it seem as if anything is true, but you have to be dedicated to the truth. So, no, you can't learn from Malcolm Gladwell, just like you can't learn to be a songwriter from studying uh, Paul McCartney, you know. (laughs) You you need to be you need to write books the way mortals write them, and uh, that's why you know these great storytellers like Scott Stratton and and Jay Bear and Daniel Pink are good models. Yes, you know if Amazon had a button, they may where you could just say, "Look, send me anything that Jay Bear, Dan Pink, Scott mm-hmm. and Allison Stratton write. Just go ahead and yeah. send it to him. Just take my money because <laughs> you know it's it's going to be great." You know what else that reminds me of about the the Malcolm Gladwell is some marketing books that have been on the show over the years where they, particularly for startups, and they say, "Look, Steve Jobs is the worst example for you." They <laughs> <laughs> said, Steve, "In fact, Adele Ravella in her book uh, Buyer Personas, she writes." Steve Jobs does not work at your company, okay? <laughs> Stop <laughs> trying to be like that. You, uh, you're, yeah. I completely agree with that sentiment. That's, yeah. that's another example of the person that you cannot be like. Yes. And please, I don't want to know anyone like that. <laughs> right, right. Well, let me just mention two books uh, that have been on the show over the years about 
writing a book, different from yours, but one mm-hmm. of them is by Tanya Hall, the CEO of Greenleaf Publishing. You mentioned Greenleaf in your book, and it was a book called Ideas, Influence, and Income. It, you know, after I think she said after they did a thousand books, she said, I guess I need to write a book <laughs> about about you know how to do a book and uh she said she learned a lot and uh she became a customer actually but sort of in a uh, 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 undercover boss way mm-hmm. and then another one is by ann janzer who you mentioned in the book uh, she wrote the book uh, get the word out again all three very uh different but uh, very i think very helpful for uh for folks that are interested in further learning so at marketingbookpodcast.com we're going to include links to everything linkable including all the books that have been mentioned your site uh your linkedin profile your twitter account and now I want to ask you a big favor, folks. Please reach out in some way to Josh. Congratulate him on this phenomenal book. Thank him for, you know, putting his reputation at risk by being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, Send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter. Subscribe to his newsletter. It's phenomenal. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because they're so ridiculously good looking, Josh. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Build a Better Business Book, How to Plan, Write, and Promote a Book that Matters, a Comprehensive Guide for Authors. The author is Josh Burnoff. Josh, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been a blast. Thanks. Josh, you had better watch your ass. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.